0: Welcome to Leading Simple with Rusty George. Our goal is to make following Jesus and leading others a bit more simple. Here's your host, Rusty George. Hey there, thanks for listening to Leading Simple where we're out to help the overwhelmed. My name is Rusty George and boy we've got some great, great stuff for you today. Dr. Paul Alexander is on the podcast, and he is the president of Hope International University and has multiple degrees and multiple levels of expertise when it comes to soul care, psychology, taking care of oneself, and he has had to deal with the changing environment of shutting a school down, opening it back up, and making sure kids are in their best mental health. So we're going to hear from him here in just a little bit. Today's episode is brought to you by Red Letter Challenge. I know for many of our pastors right now, you're thinking about a great way to start the fall season, or maybe you're already thinking about January. And I recommend using the resources from Red Letter Challenge. You can use one of their studies for about 40 days, and they'll even give you some information free if you check them out. www.redletterchallenge.com slash rusty. You're going to get a free copy of some of the materials they have. What a great thing for your church to go through. And just for anybody who's a follower of Jesus, this is a great chance for you to take a deep dive into the red letters or the words of Jesus. Redletterchallenge.com and use the promo code slash Rusty. Well, we're going to jump into our episode 160 today, my conversation with Dr. Paul Alexander. You're gonna love this and you're gonna wanna share it with somebody when we're done. Thanks for listening, here we go. Well, Paul Alexander, Dr. Paul Alexander, thank you for joining us. Where'd you get your doctorate? Let's start right there.
1: So at Regent University back in Virginia Beach and uh, it was uh, fairly early on in their deployment of their um, organizational leadership uh, PhD program. And uh, that was a good choice for me because it combined theology and psychology and business, which is not necessarily something you'd put all those together in the, in the same mix. But for me, I loved it. It was great. Is that a relatively new degree, organizational leadership? Probably the last 15 years okay. uh, it has taken off. It's still not a widely known degree, um, but there are several schools that that's kind of become their bread and butter. Okay. It's hard to find a job with a degree in organizational leadership. <laughs> You can teach organizational leadership or, or you know, you can, you can run something, but uh, it, it's, a, it's definitely a niche.
0: Okay. It, it sounds yeah. fascinating. I'm, I'm interested in all three of those things. So Yeah. Well, really, really neat. Okay, so tell us a little bit about yourself for our listeners that aren't aware. Right now, you're the president at Hope International University, but obviously haven't always been that. So give us a little bit about where'd you grow up and how'd you get to where you are?
1: Well, thank you for asking me that. Uh, so I grew up uh, born and raised in Southern California with the exception of two years uh, in middle school, which is such a great time to move away. <clears throat> Not in middle school. I spent two years in Oklahoma. Uh, my dad was president of a small small Bible college back there that doesn't even exist anymore. But uh, for the most part, Southern California um, moved a lot, even though we were generally in the same area, which... Um, I think probably began my interest in psychology uh, the effects of moving which I, I didn't enjoy so i went to a lot of new schools i went to 10 different schools growing up hmm. uh so that's one change we made when i had kids is we didn't move them they got to go through school with all the same friends i uh, went to bible college i uh, went to um hope international back when it was called pacific christian college met my wife here she grew up in huntington beach so we end up going to the same church camp and same college, and uh, we've been in Orange County ever since. Um, so I have this odd background, uh, just like my doctorate. I have this kind of weird background professionally with I have an undergrad degree in preaching, a master's degree in marriage and family therapy, and then this Ph.D. in leadership. And forever, I couldn't figure out how those were ever going to all work together. But somebody asked me when i became um, college president a year and a half ago they said do you ever use your psychology degree and i said yeah only in every meeting every day
0: (laughs) (laughs) that is so true i think every meeting you're in is a it's a uh just a basically a working thesis of uh, psychology and how people think and work and
1: it's a study in human behavior boy it certainly
0: is was your dad the president at midwest bible college He was, Okay, well, yes, I know them because they merged with Ozark, Christian With Ozark. Yeah.
1: So here's a weird story. So I was at a concert at uh, Ozark when I was just out of college. We were at the National Youth Worker Convention. There was a concert in the gym as part of that conference, and I walked around the corner in the gym, and there was my living room couch from junior high, the president's house, furniture, somehow all made it into (laughs) into the gymnasium at Ozark. It's like wow! I never expected to see that couch again. So I sat on it for old time's sake.
0: Wow, that yeah, it, that truly is a small world when you're yeah furniture from yeah Midwest Bible College. There was my yeah there.
1: there was my junior high. So I checked to see if any of the trash I stuffed in between the cushions was still there. <laughs> and someone had cleaned it out at some point.
0: Well, I believe your basketball coach came over to our school, uh, Charlie Williams. Charlie Williams. Yep, and was my basketball coach when I got there. I, I forgot yeah. what year they merged, but. Uh,
1: It was probably Uh, around 78 or 9. Okay. I showed up in uh, the late 80s, 89, 90s.
0: Yep. Well, listen, you are at Hope International, and you're practicing all elements of your degrees. And you have talked recently, and this is where I heard you talk about this, so I know we've met before, but I recently heard you talk about just the effects COVID's having on our psyche. And I, I told you, that we're spending a lot of time on this podcast talking about mental health. But I recently heard you talk about the sleeper effect of COVID. And by the time this airs, we will be well into what we would consider post-pandemic, but yet there's lingering effects. Would you just talk about that and what that means?
1: So yeah, that's a good, that's, it's something fascinating to me. um, I'd never heard of it until my marriage and family therapy training. And we realized that World War II people came back from the war and we didn't know what to describe or how to describe what was going on so we called it shell shocked. It was just just a large bucket of just odd behavior when people came back from war. Vietnam came along and we realized much more definitively that post-traumatic stress disorder is a very recognizable kind of set of symptoms. 9-11 comes along and it was fascinating how similar first responders and family members of those who were lost their reactions were similar to war veterans, the same kind of nightmares, the same kind of flashbacks, the exaggerated response to stimuli. And so we see when there are these crises that come along, we're affected by them sometimes not for six months, not for 12 months. There's the sleeper effect. We get through the initial crisis, and then it's only 12, 18 months later that we get anxious or depressed or realize something's off. and, and that's what I have, I am pretty sure I would put money on it that we're gonna be experiencing with COVID is our leaders who've been running on adrenaline the last year are gonna run out of their stores of energy and resources. And at some point during the next year or so as we're coming out now of COVID, um, we're gonna have a lot of leaders, um, political, religious, um, faith-based, civic, who are just not going to know what's wrong and they may be anxious, they may be depressed, they may be both. Um they may feel like they need to switch jobs and not even understand what's going on. But there's this there's going to be a time where we feel better and then for some of us we're going to feel worse and not know why.
0: Yeah, I think that uh, at the time we're recording this, I mean, I'm already seeing that and right now I think there's a bit of a euphoria that people have of oh, we're moving back indoors and this is going to be exciting and moving down to different tiers and summer's coming but i have a feeling that by winter it's just we're gonna be dealing with cold and flu season again we're gonna have to get revaccinated all those kind of things Uh, this is not going to be fun and i think we're going to be dealing with that um talk a little bit about the what the loss of control does to us because that seems to be what really um pushes the stress buttons for us is when we feel out of control and I mean, I think we both know there's very little in the world that we actually control, but there was an assumption to what we controlled before COVID. And now post-COVID, I mean, I don't think it'll ever feel like it did before.
1: So I happen to have a well-known pastor in my office today. We're kind of renewing our relationship with the church, the college and the church. And we were talking um, at some length about the fact that as leaders, we're always conditioned to find something we can do or change or lever we can pull. That's how we're wired. That, that we look at a situation that's messy and we think we can bring order to it. Well, COVID comes along and we realize there are, there are no levers, there are no handles. We just kind of had to survive. And, and there's always that grappling, that as we're coming out, I'm looking for things that I can grab again to go back to my old habits of control, dictate, change. And uh, there's not much that we can control. And so we know from psychological studies that the more out of control we feel we tend to either get anxious or depressed and so we look for the kind of pseudo control we control dirt right so we so we control chaos and we become we head towards ocd we can control something or we control our eating or not or we right so we look for these other ways to let it out but the general response that people have based on psychological research is is either anxiety or depression, and kind of in that order. They feel anxious, predominantly, and maybe secondarily depression, because we want to be in control. So I think of this spiritually. It's really the essence of what happened in the garden is God said, I'm in control, and I'm in control of this one part of the garden, and you can't touch it. And Adam and Eve said, yeah, we think we want to do that. right Mm -hmm. i want i want to have full control over everything in my environment and that has been getting us in trouble only forever right this this crazy thinking that we think we can control everything and i've had to admit to myself and the lord that i really do not like not having essential control during the pandemic kind of hate it in fact Mm -hmm. but i think it's interesting that maybe six months into this rusty when I, I had, took a long look in the mirror one day and I realized I can either make myself crazy wanting to regain, quote unquote, control, or I can begin to accept the fact that I've never had very much mm. and try to begin to, to internalize that. And there have been moments that have been better since then, and then there have been moments where I want to I figure it all out and, and control. And that's that's something just endemic to us as leaders. We wish that we could control as much as possible. That's a long answer. No, Sorry. I love that. And
0: it it's just, it brings up so many different thoughts about, I mean, the garden for one, all of the things that we saw happen in there and that are still playing out from a loss of control to a need to know secret knowledge. We have all these mm-hmm. conspiracy theories right now. I mean, <laughs> of all that can be traced back to the garden. Yeah and our, our frustration with all of this. You used a line in a, in a, a conversation um, we got to be a part of a few weeks ago. You said, at some point, we have to reckon with the God of the absence. Mm. Uh, talk a little bit about that and what some of us may be feeling about our, our grief we're going through.
1: So that is a line that I stole from one of my favorite writers, Frederick Beekner, who's not well-known, but he's well-known to a lot of um, pastors. Frederick Buechner said in one of his early books that it is not just the God of the present that we must reckon with, but it is also the God of the absent. Mm -hmm. And he talked about Job, and he talked about David. And man, I read that when I was 20 or 21, and that never left me. Because I think at the core of so many of our spiritual and emotional issues is the pain of feeling like God is not present. Now, God is present. But we're emotional beings, you know, we, we try to tell ourselves we're rational beings, but we're really not. I, I think that we're really emotional beings um, who try to be rational. So when a crisis comes along, a death or a pandemic or natural disaster, right we, we cry out to God and there's just, to use Job's word, a whirlwind. There's just darkness or storm and we've all been there. Um, I know that when my daughter—if I can say this without getting really emotional—when my daughter was diagnosed with a very serious autoimmune disorder, and I hit my knees, and and there were many days in the months we were trying to figure out where there, it was just silent, and and that is a that is a desperate feeling as a Christ follower when I I want and need God to show His face, and I just hear crickets. I, I hear hmm. silence, deafening silence. And and so that's part of what we're doing. We're helping each other with our emotional issues is we're, we're trying to comfort those who are hurting because God feels so distant, leaders who are struggling because God doesn't seem to be providing relief or, um, or a direction or a path. Uh, and yet that that is just our existence. And so I, I'm always drawn to the characters that have a little melancholy in them because I have a little melancholy in me. So, you know, David and and Job, man, I understand what they're saying when they, they're crying out, you know, my God, where are you? But then I think about the phrase, where are you? And I, th- I think about Jesus saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? One of the most powerful emotional statements in Scripture that helps me understand that God knows what I'm feeling. And that was really a breakthrough for me right after college when I, when I went through a pretty serious depression was, you know, I, I've heard that scripture my entire life. I'm a preacher's kid, but in the darkness of my depression, I read that verse and I thought, man, that's, that's how I feel. And God gets it because Jesus said it, right? That, that Jesus looked at what was in front of him and, and he felt abandoned. Now he, he obviously knew he wasn't Right. But that but that was the feeling. And so part of part of what we have to do as leaders is, is admit, I think, and be transparent that we have had moments that feel pretty absent and 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 difficult. And that's a generationally different thing. So, you know, um, preachers that are in their 70s, 80s and 90s would not agree with that. They, they would not they would say it's not OK to stand up as a communicator, as a preacher, teacher and say, we need to think about the absence of God. Millennials have no problem getting up and saying that they're, they're very comfortable with this idea of grappling with that. That's been my experience. Anyway,
0: I I completely agree. Uh, It doesn't matter how many times I talk about my anxiety or stress or bouts with any kind of mental illness, people, they, they lean in, they, they need to know, Uh, which is what I love about scripture. And you made this point in our conversation about David possibly being bipolar you read through the Psalms. Tell us a little bit more about that.
1: So one of my um, one of my Christian psychology professors said that in class one day and I was offended because I thought, no, people in the Bible don't have psychological disorders. <laughs> right? They're right. above that. Right. And but the more I thought it about it, I thought, you know what? If if we take what we know about psychological structures and, and diagnostic criteria and we just try to be objective and then look at how David lived and how he communicated with himself, others and God. He fits a lot of the characteristics of at least something like bipolar. So there's something, the little milder version called cyclothymia. Mm-hmm. And I have felt since that shocking statement by my professor, I thought he he may be right. I mean, we don't we don't know what it was like day in and day out. But David certainly seemed to have high highs and low lows. And one of the things I think that we love about David is when he felt low low, he wrote about it and he wrote songs and he sang them. Mm-hmm. I don't know if he sang them well. I don't know, but but he. He was high and he was low, and I I get that. I kind of like that. Mm.
0: Yeah, I like to think that uh, David could sing well. That seems to make sense, right? He should have. Yeah, <laughs> he's,
1: he should be a good singer, right? Yeah,
0: I mean, he's you know <laughs> able to play multiple instruments. He's right. incredibly good looking, at least according to Michelangelo. I mean, he should be able to sing, you know, like paparazzi or whatever.
1: <laughs> he can huck he a rock really well. well he can slang. throw I a rock that.
0: well, that He's is for sure. He's probably a good
1: singer, too. He's one of those guys that's good at everything.
0: <laughs> yes, yeah, the, the people that, uh, that we really don't like. Yeah. Well, um, I, I know that for many of our uh, listeners, they have either dealt with these things or or they, um, they are currently dealing with these things. Maybe they have somebody in their family that's dealing with these things. And these kind of spill over into our day-to-day life because, I mean, at the end of the day, you still got to go to work. And in leadership especially, in any level of leadership that you're in, uh, you've got to kind of deal with this and manage your own mental health while leading a team. I want to talk about some of the decisions that you had to make during the COVID season. Leading a university, mm. you had to shut down. Which, at a public school, you shut down. Um, that's one thing. But at a private institution, at your university, you're relying on uh, room and board. Yep. You're relying on students to be on campus. It's online that you know is it, fine, but it's not paying all the bills. Yep. You had to make a lot of difficult decisions, and in the midst of that, you had people with different theories. on Was this political? Was this right? You know, was this an act of fear? Tell me how you navigated all that. What did you learn through that season of high-impact leadership? Hey, let me interrupt this episode for one second and remind you, we are very, very close to hitting the one million download. Probably will happen this month. And we want to give away something to celebrate. If you go to PastorRustyGeorge.com, you can register and you're going to receive a gift basket filled with some of my favorite things, including a cooking spice that I grew up with. I've never seen anybody else use it. I found it in a store. I bought some of them for you. My mom used it all the time. I use it all the time. We love it, our kids love it. You're gonna love it. And so that's just something different for me to give to you as a thank you. Thanks for helping us hit one million downloads and help us celebrate by going to the website, typing in your information, and you'll be entered to win one of our 10 gift baskets we're gonna be giving out. Okay, enough of that, back to the episode. What did you learn through that season of high-impact leadership?
1: So one of the most helpful things that happened was I lucked into a webinar provided by our lobbying association for Christian colleges, and this was a fundamentally helpful webinar. Mm -hmm. And and I got so many, I I was bombarded. I'm sure all leaders were bombarded with, listen to our webinar, we're going to tell you, and I went to three or four of those and I thought, they don't know, nobody knows anything so this isn't helpful uh, you know your feelings about your feelings is not helping me as a president that nobody had any data right so it was it was about 10 days into the crisis and colleges across the country just like churches right so it was like dominoes across the country you know a couple shut down no big deal and then there was this critical moment on a thursday and friday in mid-march where everybody closed and So, 10 days into it, I get into this webinar. I thought, oh boy, here we go again. This is not going to be helpful. And they brought in an award winning economist who studies leaders' reactions during crisis. So I perked up a little bit because I I like research based stuff. And he said, leaders in crisis tend to use too few data points too quickly and choose ones that are too optimistic. Hmm. And I thought, check, check, check. I was looking for any school that would stay open for any reason looking at uh, cherry-picking data, and I, it caused me to slow down and look at a broader array of data. And when I did that, I realized not only were we going to shut down, but we were going to have to stay shut down indefinitely. Because my, my wish would be that we sent students away for a couple weeks and brought them back. That's fully what we intended when we extended spring break for a week. And I realized I've got to slow down, I've got to look at all the data, even though it's painful and even though it's frightening, uh, and, and evaluate it truthfully. And that was hard, but being, being open to that word and, and running into his, uh, counsel was fundamentally helpful. So one of the things I learned is to shift into low gear, um, throughout COVID, uh, not run quickly, but run slowly. So I know I had people on my team that thought we were foot dragging. And I told them one day, I said, you probably think I'm foot dragging. That's because I'm foot dragging because I want to see what other people are doing. More importantly, I want to see why they're doing it. And we're going to make decisions later uh, because it's to our benefit because it gives us more time to assemble more data. Once I explained my rationale, they became a little less worried about it. But man, because of our anxiety and wanting to be in control, I think a lot of leaders were just going so fast. So I don't want to say what institution it was, Cal State Fullerton. They made decisions. They're just across the street from me here. They made decisions really quickly and very publicly, uh, which caused the phone to ring off the hook in my office. You know, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And I said, we'll let you know. We'll let you know by this date, which we did. Uh, But so the number one thing I learned is that I had to slow down. The number two thing I learned was that I had to be communicating more frequently than I thought I was and thought I needed to. Um, I assumed that if I gave an update, people would know that nothing changed until I provided the next update. And that wasn't true. People assumed that I made an update and then more was going on that was secret. So that took a while for that feedback to get to me, that, that people um, have this insatiable desire for constant updating during a crisis. And that was one of my mistakes is that in the, in the first few months, I didn't communicate frequently enough. Um, so I changed that once, once I was getting good feedback, uh, and started communicating more frequently. So, you know, if there's ever another pandemic, I'll do a better job communicating more frequently.
0: (laughs) You know, I'd hate to think that there's going to be another one, but, you know, my leadership side says, bring it on. Now I know what to do. We have a
1: playbook now.
0: Exactly. Right? We didn't know any of it before.
1: And many of the plays work, and a few don't. But at least, at least there's a playbook.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I, it's funny. I, I'm keeping one of these 10-year um, journals. Have you seen these things? Mm-hmm. You know, you, just, you enter a few things every day, just a couple of sentences. Yeah. And so I've reached the point now where I'm reading what I wrote this time last year. And oh, my goodness. And we're recording this in uh, the end of March. <laughs> and I'm, I'm reading things that are, are just hilarious, like, well, we'll probably be shut down for a couple of weeks, yep. uh, working on online, but getting ready for Easter to be live. You know, I'm like, yep. what did I They're know? They're just
1: all entitled, Hubris Today, Hubris <laughs> Tomorrow. <laughs>
0: exactly.
1: It just shows
0: you how little we really know and how much we're out of control. Uh, yeah. During all this, goodness, you had to have taken some criticism
1: so it's interesting in the in the first third so if i think of like the first third the middle third and the last third um the first third i got a lot of grace uh people understood that that we were being whipsawed by you know the the size uh and the scope and and our need for safety right because i've got parents parents understand needing to err on the side of caution the middle phase that middle third i took a lot of shots Um, from people that thought I was being too cautious and I know a lot of pastors took a lot of shots in in that middle third and 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 I don't live in other people's skin I don't know the motivation for the criticism I don't know if it's if it's a genuine belief or or if it's them trying to get control back or them wanting to return to something that they find more comfortable um, or it, it feels good to be angry when, instead of anxious, I don't know all the reasons why I just know that, that there was a time when I was, uh, catching it from s- some students, some parents, uh, some alums, one really helpful thing was that the board stood with me arm in arm, the board of trustees. And, um, I kept them in the loop on what I was thinking. And so that's really one of the advice points I would have for young leaders is learn to explain your decision-making process. Learn learn to have an elevator speech on your big decisions, how you arrived at them, right? So my starting point in every decision was, how do I keep students healthy and staff thriving and remind people that we're not a community of 18 to 25-year-olds? We're actually a community of 18 to 80-year-olds because we have staff and faculty that are septuagenarians and and love the Lord and they're still working well they matter as much as you know the 18 year old does and they're part of our community and sometimes parents aren't used to that they're used to just thinking about their son or their daughter now you can say all of that but some people are still going to be unhappy so you know it 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 was what it was and it wasn't my favorite, but that to me, that was the most challenging period was that middle period because it was, the fatigue was starting to set in for leaders for me. Mm. Right. I was, I mean, after three or four months that, you know, I'm kind of done with this, Yeah. but knew we were going to, it was going to keep going. And then the criticism seemed to die down during the last third, mm-hmm. the third, third.
0: Right. Yeah. I did seem to change a little bit in the latter months and with spring on the way, it, it certainly felt better. Yeah. Um, you mentioned these three trusses, of trust that you walk through. Can you can you share some of that with our audience?
1: Yeah, you know, that's um, that's framework that I picked up in my PhD program, and it stuck with me. It was very easy to remember this idea that trust is one of the most important things that we hold and we convey and we share in an organization, that we're sort of the chief trust holder, and that we have to embody things that build trust and, and affirm it. So the three trusses of trust are competence character and compassion according to an article that i read during my program and i thought hey i can remember that it makes sense uh and it's a good teaching model for young leaders that we can co- sort of evaluate ourselves as do i know the job if i don't know parts am i am i learning mm. is my central character whole um and do i care about people and can I bend a rule if I need to? Can I extend more grace? Can I, can I give people latitude and forgiveness? Can I be compassionate on someone, even if they're not being compassionate with me? And I said to the leaders in the, the conversation that you were a part of, I said, you know, people are watching us and studying us as we lead through a crisis. And they're evaluating, whether they think of it in these terms or not, they're evaluating, do they still trust me? Right. And am I leading in such a way that trust continues to build or am I leading in such a way that it's beginning to deplete trust? Mm. And I think that's one of those things I as I critique my own leadership, the fact that I didn't communicate enough in the beginning hurt some of that trust Mm. because people start thinking, well, is there a secret I don't know about? Are Are you is there something bad going on? Right. So how do I rebuild trust? I say my bad and I'm going to do better. And I'm going to be better in these ways. And that's hard for us as leaders. We don't, none of us like saying, you know, I messed up. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't love it, but I, I think it's part of my job as leaders to say, I did these five things well. I did one thing really well, but two things I blew. I just, I just didn't do it right. And I think that's part of our commitment to being um, integrous leaders. So, So trust is something that I think is vitally important and probably not understood well enough.
0: Uh, you make such a great point about <clears throat> communicating with your staff and with everybody else. I think there is this assumption that we all just think, well, I said it once, that's all I need to say. And I'm I'll tell you when my mind changes. Right. Um, But I learned that the hard way as well. And I had to learn how to communicate on multiple platforms multiple times, because just because I send out an all-church email doesn't mean everybody's going to open it. (laughs) And just because we're preaching, or I mentioned it in a message, doesn't mean everybody heard it. And people were outing themselves by saying, when are we going to open? Oh, I mentioned that in last week's sermon. You didn't listen, did you? And in four subsequent emails. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Well, I want to get to um, what's going on right now as we're airing this. And that is we have, uh, you know, parents sending their kids back to school, K through 12, college students. It's a new reality. Uh, The last two years were strange, uh, especially this past year, because a lot of students didn't meet. And then when they did, it was only for a short period of time. Now, as we're getting back into the swing of things, people going back to school, there's still a little bit of a fear and apprehension. What can you, you know, educate our parents on and what they need to know about helping their teens navigate their own mental health as they head back into school?
1: so that's that's a rich question with lots of layers to it and and part of what informs my um, answers and opinions is the fact that i'm married to a a k-12 educator my wife has taught her entire career she has taught middle school god bless her the last decade so i'm i'm experiencing um, COVID and the rebuilding from sort of through my lens as a college president but also you know and in the trenches teacher and watching her deal with her students and their stress and their anxiety um, so you know one thing that, that I want to remind people is that prior to COVID, we were already struggling nationally with K12 and higher ed, trying to understand the, the surges we saw in general anxiety. Um, for about the five years pre-COVID, we were seeing just a huge, tremendous spike in general anxiety disorders. Um, and we had, we had no good theory as to why. So COVID comes along and we take an already anxious student population, And now we isolate them. So for some, the isolation made the anxiety better. If they had been phobic about school, it made the anxiety better. But for many others, the isolation spiked the anxiety even more and drove the depression to lower lows because we're not supposed to be that isolated. Um, One of the things that we have seen is the parents pain at watching their kids not thrive at home because they know their kids need to be in community. They know that their kids aren't thriving. Most parents know that their kids aren't thriving because their kids need to be around other kids, even though they can be knuckleheads to each other and all of that. Right. But they still need to be around. So the, the kids who have been a little depressed and a little anxious. They're probably going to thrive when they get back together. Um, the kids who have been highly anxious. I don't, i don't know what i don't know yet about how they're going to do as they try to head back the the mild depression mild anxiety i think they're going to thrive pretty quickly by just being able to be around each other more but one of the things that anxious k-12 students do um, especially adolescents is they assume that if they take themselves out of their anxious situation that their anxiety will be better and the paradox is when we remove ourselves from anxiety-producing situations, it often builds the anxiety rather than reduce it. Mm. So the student that gets anxious at school and thinks, if I could just stay home, I'd be better, the parents who who are empathetic say, okay, hey, stay home, sweetie. Three, three days in, five days in, 10 days into this home stay, they're actually more anxious, and now they're more fearful about school. Mm. And so that's a real conundrum. So Prior to COVID, when I would do parent training, I did that in a few of our churches, I would really push parents to force their kids to go to school, even though they didn't want to. And I would talk about three poker chips. And this is hard for parents to to wrap their minds around this. It's gotten mixed reviews, but I still believe in it. And the three poker chips is give your kids three poker chips who are anxious and tell them, you can use these poker chips anytime you want in the next eight months of school. But once they're gone, they're gone. And a poker chip gives you a mental health day off from school. So if you want to turn in your chip, you get a free pass. But once the three chips are gone, so right, so I'm saying this to a big room of parents, and about half the parents were nodding, like so happy to be empowered. And the other half crossed their arms, like, how could I do that? So here's the amazing thing. Uh, I, I go to a larger church in Anaheim, and they, they did a little bit of advertising for a how to help your, um, your junior high and high schooler with anxiety. We had no idea if anybody was going to come. I put together a PowerPoint. I thought, nobody's going to come to this. It was like a Sunday night, and 300 parents showed up. <laughs> and were eager to write down any tools because it's, it's really hard for us as parents to watch our kids struggling, and we don't want to push the wrong direction so we don't push any direction. But there's a lot of research that says the best thing you can do for an anxious child is push them some, don't break them, but push them some so that they can get back in school, they can stay in class and realize, I can stay in class even though I'm anxious and it didn't kill me. I can survive lunch even though I didn't want to and it didn't kill me. And that success begins to breed success. So I would strongly encourage parents to push their kids to re-engage, start building friendships again, and certainly have vocabulary around why school is uncomfortable, but not allow a free pass home back to, ho- you know, Hotel Med and Hotel Spa, which is my house, and, and hide out. Because it's not going to serve them well. Right. So that was a good soapbox. I feel really good about that soapbox. Well,
0: you should. That's a brilliant <laughs> idea. And I love the poker chip idea. Yeah. We've, we've seen that play out in our home as well. And there's a need yep. for a mental health day. We, we do that from jobs all the time. So yep. teaching our kids how to manage that.
1: Well, we learned it with our, our daughter is an overachiever and our son is a uh, leisure enthusiast. So <laughs> with, with our daughter, uh, we gave her a couple of poker chips a year. She's the overachiever, parented herself. but man worked herself into a frenzy with, with stress. So we'd say, you know, maybe it's a poker chip day. And she would reluctantly turn in the poker chip For my son was manufacturing poker chips in his bedroom and selling them to his friends, <laughs> turning them in whatever he could. He's running a counterfeit ring. He had a little business on the side.
0: That's great. Well, uh, Paul, this has been so, so helpful. Any final words for our, our parents of, of students, any age and um, any resources you want to just kind of direct us to anything? Any last words?
1: You know, I don't have one perfect uh, resource. I, I wish I did. I wish there was one, one easy resource I could send them to. I, my, my general encouragement to parents right now is try as hard as you can to listen to your kids without trying to solve it. And push your kids to connect with peers. Mm. Um, research says just one connection between a student and a peer and a student and a staff or faculty member makes all the difference. Mm. If they can connect with one teacher or professor and one peer, even if the peer is not somebody you would have chosen, Mm. but just these these anchoring relationships make all the difference. Mm. So have conversations around starting friendships and starting conversations because I have a soft spot in my heart for shy kids. Half of our kids are really shy, both of mine were. So we did a lot of practicing conversation starting conversation continuing because I realized both my kids were terrified of the beginning of friendships. Mm. And I realized I can teach them that. I know a lot. I've learned a lot and taught myself a lot over the years about how to begin a friendship, even though it's scary. Because I'm shy. I, you know, I at church when it's you know shake and howdy time, I always pretend like I pull a hammy and I don't, you know, I'm i got to sit down and take care of my leg. It's I hurt myself here. <laughs> I don't love that. I don't love meeting strangers. But you learn tips and tricks over time, and, and adolescents are sort of bound by that fear in kids. So let's teach our kids how to start conversations, sustain conversations, and keep trying, and then reward them lavishly if they make a new friend. I mean, whatever, mm. wh- however we can reward them if our shy son or daughter or reluctant son or daughter begins to engage, mm. man, that's, that's reward time. Mm. So modeling, conversations... Um, and and embrace the idea of social fitness. That that it's a skill set like any other, and I can help my kids with emotional fitness and social fitness. Um, and by embodying it, by by being a good example, mm-hmm. by praying for my sons and daughters, but but help them to engage. That the most effective thing we can do in general for our kids is make sure that they have good, rich relationships. Mm.
0: That is so good. It, when you were talking about that, it reminded me of a, a comedian that I think you probably have heard of named Michael Jr. Yep. Uh, he tells the story of when his kids were young, he wanted them to get used to talking and having to, you know, kind of come up with things on the fly. So they'd sit around at home and he'd put, uh, I don't know, 20 bucks on the table or whatever. And then he would call places that he didn't know, or they didn't know where he was calling businesses. Okay. And then he would just hand them the phone, and they had to start a conversation. <laughs> I love that.
1: And then reward them if they can do it. Let's yeah. Right? And then let's the best way to make that fun.
0: Yeah, the person that could keep the conversation going the longest won whatever the kitty was. Yep. But he said his favorite was he handed it to his daughter one time, and she her question was, "What's your phone number?" Which was just <laughs> great.
1: Since <laughs> they just called. That's a hand down. That's a head in yeah, hand moment. That's
0: exactly right. <laughs> Well, this has been really helpful. I wish I'd heard this many years ago when my kids were younger. But I think there's always room for us to learn and how to always. how to lean into our uh, our situations with our kids and helping them with just the anxiety of life. And Paul, I really appreciate this and praying for a great year for Hope and for for you and for your faculty and students. And I hope it's wonderful. And if people want to find out more about Hope International University. Uh, You want to give them the website, hiu.edu?
1: Hiu.edu. Okay. And uh, we'd be happy to help them answer any questions that they have or tell them anything about our programs.
0: Yeah, it is a great campus and a long, rich legacy. I had a chance to speak in chapel there several years ago. So fun. What what a great, great place you guys have there. So thanks for being on the podcast and all the best to you this year.
1: Thank you, Rusty, and thanks for uh, letting me share the time, and, and God bless you in this work. It's good work. Well, thanks so much
0: for listening. Please subscribe and share. That would mean the world to us. And we would love to hear from you. You can DM me on Instagram at Rusty L. George, or you can email me at rgeorge at org. Please share this with somebody else. We all need good mental health. Next week, we'll be back with brand new content with one of my favorite people, author and pastor, uh, organizational leader, thought leader, Dr. Caleb Kaltenbach. He'll be with us. Talk to you then. Take a moment and subscribe to the podcast so you'll get it delivered every week. And subscribe to the Rusty George YouTube channel for more devotionals, messages, and fun videos.
1: Thank you for listening to Leading Simple.